Welcome to episode 208 of Redboard Rewind. My name is Spencer Luganbuehl, and today my special guest is owner, handicapper, Clay Sanders. Me and Clay go over three races from this past weekend at Oaklawn Park. Those races are 9, 11, and 12. And some angles that we cover are how in recent weeks, when it's been raining, it's time to stick to the golden rail. And also, was the Southwest winner just a slop lover? And was he also bias aided? This is Red Board Rewind. It's the same old story in this cycle. We go back and forth. We go back and forth. It ain't good for me. Why we do this for? We go back and forth. Won't do this no more. Like to welcome in my special guest for this week's edition of Redboard Rewind. If we're talking about the preps over at Oaklawn Park, there's none I'd rather have on the show than Clay Sanders. Clay, how are you? I'm doing great, Spencer. Happy to be here today. How are you? I'm doing all right. Glad to have you aboard. Busy week of preps. Oaklawn for me is always one track that, you know, there's no turf racing. So it's kind of nice to just go back to, you know, one track, one track variant, you know, sure they're going long and short, but there's not as many, you know, now we're, we're getting these tracks with synthetic turf and dirt, and those can be, you know, kind of a, you know, cluster, you know what, if you know I'm getting out with that. But uh, for you, what how, how was your weekend? How's it been over at Oakland? So, I uh, know Oakland's been off to a good start for, I mean, both uh, from an ownership and uh, from a gambling perspective. As far as the weekend uh, is concerned, I didn't do as well as I wanted on Saturday. Had a poor day as I was slow to recognize uh, the rail bias. That I mean, if you look at Oakland in general, historically, it's one of the more fair dirt tracks. And you kind of mentioned before about turf, dirt, synthetic. It's easier to keep track of biases in Oakland because you really only have two distances, three if you throw in some of the shorter uh two turn routes with the with the mile, but it's a lot easier to pick up on biases because you're seeing races over and over. As Marshall and I like to say, Oakland has the right mix of turf and dirt racing, 100% <laughs> dirt. Um, but I just think uh, you get a better shot of recognizing things and not seeing, you know, a fluky, you know, at Saratoga, they have maybe two dirt races or three dirt races on the card. It's hard to have, you know, confidence uh, when some of these biases appear. But back to what I was saying is, Historically, Oakland's been a really fair track. Uh, you know, dirt racing in general, you want to be close. I don't care where the track is, but you know, especially later in the meet uh, when the uh, when the dirt gets a little when it gets warmer and the dirt's deeper, you can really close in Oakland. This year, they redid the track, and it's been more uh, speed favoring than I've seen historically. But what's been more unique is when the rain has come the last two weekends. Uh, the rail has been golden. And like I said, I was a little slow to pick up on it on Saturday. Some of these rail biases are harder to keep track of in the big fields in Oakland. And when you're watching races and, and the, the, the bias seems really bad on the backside. So you may see a horse come down the middle of the track and go, see, yeah, you know, the, you know, the stretch in bias, but that horse may have spent, you know, 80% of the race on the rail so sometimes if you're not going back and watching replays after watching them live, you need to go back and see where these winners are spending a lot of their a lot of their time. 
I think as well, and you talk about, you know, watching a whole entire race, and I think a lot of people just pick up biases, you know, from just watching it down the stretch. And like you said, there's so many times where it can be, you know, down the back of the racetrack as well, where if the horse is four or five wide, and all of a sudden you see like four or five races in a row, horses losing, you know, are are they losing spots because they're just wide or losing spots because it's better to be on the inside? That's why for me, I think when it comes to bias, and listen, the way that the tracks are now, you either have to know it immediately and jump on it, or by the next day it's already been fixed or switched around some other way. Uh, I try to just, like, if it's in the early pick five and I see a bias, I'll wait till like, the late pick four just to make sure 100%, even, like, a late pick three, to really try to make sure that I'm, you know, on. I've seen four or five, you know, 20 to one shots stay up that I usually would back up or have known to back up down the stretch. And I, I think it's very key, as everyone always sees, like we've talked about this plenty of times on this pod, oh my god, four speed horses won. Well, they paid a total of, you know, 720 combined, and that's why they, and that's why the, is it a bias, or just that these races were, you know, very, very big monster favorites, just, you know, crushing smaller competition. And that's why bias gets thrown around so much that, to me, it's almost become the quote-unquote taboo word of, like, beginning handicappers, where... I feel like a lot of people, when they teach, like, watch the bias first when they haven't even really learned, you know, the class system or, you know, how we're supposed to look at buyer figures improving or declining. And I I, I think you're spot on. And look, I'm in general, I try not to pay that close of attention to bias unless it's super strong. I think it's a way overplayed, overwatched phenomenon in New York, like on a dry track, a lot of it can be changed throughout the day. We know the track superintendents have more influence over this than they have historically. So you can have, you know, a speed track in the first part of the card and then it flips, uh, you know, inside and it can flip later. Some of these tracks, you know, they tend to have been making the inside uh, a little deeper to try to make it safer, closer to the rail and have these horses running in the two and three path. So I agree with you. I think people bias is overplayed by handicappers but sometimes when you get one like you had the last two weeks at oakland if you're not paying attention to it you're not going to be able to win without notice of being playing horses that are going to be on the inside something else i want to bring up with you and it's something that i've just struggled with continuously over my horse racing career these you know horses with four or five starts usually they're derby trail horses etc or just you know the younger horses i see a race where they you know ran second on the lead they were eighth, you know, closing from, you know, six or seven back. And then they have that stalking trip, you know, and being starting off at third or fourth. And, you know, maybe they win that race. So when you're looking at pace scenarios and stuff like this, for me, I'd kind of make that horse as more of a stalker because that was the one good race he ran. So you'd, you'd want them to have them to run that same kind of pace back. But then you also have to look at the time form figures. And was this horse, you know, part of a slow pace and he can never get it back up to that pace. For you as an owner, where how are you kind of instructing jockeys? You know, obviously you're looking through the past performances. You kind of know where you want the horses to sit, but with those younger ones, what are kind of your uh, you know tried and true ideas? Well, I mean, running styles of horses you know develop over a course of a horse's career, and you know early on, a lot of these horses that are you know early developers, they're going to be up front because that's when they're trained at two, it almost is to go, go, go. You'll have certain trainers that um, will have their horses relax a little early. Chad Brown's one, 
Um, but, you know, you get these, you know, the Bob Baffert, you know, Todd and, you know, Brad Cox, they want their horses for the most part in their career to be forward. So they're teaching them early to be sin, sin, sin. But to your point, these these horses develop over time and you, the, the, the trainers are tinkering. You know, they may have had a speed horse that, you know, is not relaxing and not able to get two turns. So they're teaching them in the morning to kind of sit and relax. So these running styles can change quite a bit over the first four or five races of a horse's career. I think once they get settled into a pattern, it's rare for these horses to change unless, you know, they miss a break or, you know, they're in a field, you know, void of speed. You know, maybe you have a sharp trainer or owner that, you know, can, you know, understand and read the past performances and, you know, tell that horse, to, you know, to go when it's not necessarily been, you know, that horse's style, but, you know, I think, you know, a lot of owners try to over-engineer, you know, stuff to the trainers and jockeys. A lot of the trainers don't necessarily want to hear, you know, in, you know, instructions from the owner. We're, we're kind of a, a little bit of a unique situation that we've been doing it long enough and have respect from a lot of our trainers that they will definitely entertain our ideas more so than most. But, uh, you know, a lot of times that trainer is going to um, want to give those writing instructions versus uh having a lot of input from the owner, if that makes sense. No, absolutely. And I'm sure that there's been times where you're, you asked to, you know, give information, maybe they say no, and maybe it's because you want yeah. the horse to lay back and maybe close a little bit more. Cause you feel like there's gonna be a hot pace. And then instead they send, and then you just know, like in, in your heart of hearts, that that would have been the winning ride would have been at least, you know, okay, maybe we're not getting the winning check, but at least we're going to get something in the top three. No, absolutely. And I also think we're also been around long enough to know that, you know, those jockeys have to, you know, make some of those decisions on the fly. We may be upset with what they did, but when you start thinking back, you know, we all love to blame, you know, the rides, jockeys, the track, et cetera. But, you know, more often than not, your horse just wasn't good enough and you either handicapped poorly or your horse just either wasn't in the right spot, wasn't good enough, et cetera. And, you know, everyone likes to point likes to point the finger, but you know, more often than not, your horses look good enough. Yeah. But, um, I always try and explain. And, and, and for me, I don't try a jockey bash in general because obviously what they do for, for me, it's when they go like, you know, 21 out of the gate. And even like, if you have a clock in your head, you should know that you're going like, you know, four furlong sprint speeds in a, in a mile race. And what are you doing? But, but the jockey ride that forever changed my mind on just, you know, trying to quell that completely was, um, the one that cost me the most money in my life when I had Destin in the Belmont and I ride either could have split horses or gone outside. And of course he splits and I lose and that costs me a healthy penny, but just watching that type of, I mean, these guys and for everyone who says, you know, you know, they want to complain every day. It's split seconds for these guys who haven't even been up on top of a horse. I mean, for me, and that's why I think when I ride horses, just in general, I'm, you know, pretty cautious in general, because I know exactly what can happen in a split second. One, errant tree yeah. limb falling down they're spooked and then i'm going 65 like i rad down down the back stretch um I, I just think when it comes to that and it's thank you so much for the insight just how important it is to learn about these pace scenarios and just different stuff that jockeys do but why don't we do some handicapping here clay let's jump into the first of these three races from oklahoma park from this past saturday we're gonna start with race number nine it is the martha washington it's two hundred fifty thousand listed stake one and one sixteenth miles on that good old luscious dirt course over there at oklahoma one big favorite in here, that one being Denim and Pearls. If you look through, PPs look quite well. Back to back, eighty-one buyer tops. Yes, these horses are. This one was lightly raced, but for me, some negatives. 
This one had over a length lead going into the stretch, ended up backing up and losing and was under even money. Do I want to take that type of price again in a race like this? Where I thought there were some interesting spots, you know, I thought Promise Me an Empire, first time three-year-old off of a layoff. Listen, Robertino Diodoro does quite well off those, 15%, not the best ROI, but this one only cost 30. They finally break the maiden. This one's slowly improving. I think if Denim and Pearls can come back, you know, listen, this one's either run 81 or a 63. Well, there's plenty of 70s marks in there that Promise Me an Empire can run that this one can, you know, back up into. I also thought Hush Honey the seven at a nice price of 10 to one for Randy Morris coming off that nice 79 last time. Yes, it was sprinting. Now we're stretching back out, but I just wonder if maybe they sharpen this one speed up a little bit and this one can kind of steal it on the front end with a Escavel, who I know for me has been quite a decent rider on the front end when I play this one. What about you, Clay? So uh, I, I had questions about, I always think, uh, I always think, Handicapper should evaluate the favorite. There was no doubt in anybody's mind that the, the Bradcock Dinner and Pearls was going to be favorite in this race. Morning line six to five, you know, probably projected to go off around four to five against this, you know, relatively soft, unproven field. You know, there may be some good horses in here, but they were certainly unproven. But I, I like you, I did not like Denim and Pearls at all. I wanted to play against this horse. I, you know, out of Into Mischief, out of Majestic Warrior, did not seem two turns to me, scream two turns to me. The horse went from the one-turn mile to the two-turn mile last time in the stake, ran second, like he set the lead and couldn't, you know, seal the deal, stepped backwards on the time form, you know, paired up on the buyer. To me, just in watching the horse run, just, you know, screams a sprinter to me. So those are the horses in these you know, as they stretch these horses out in these uh, Derby and Oaks preps, horses that look short prices that you just want to fade. Sure, they can win, and sometimes they'll win just on pure talent, but as the water gets deeper, these horses are going to lose and lose at short prices, and that's how you make money. A horse that I keyed in on in this race was uh, from the same barn uh, from Brad Cox, was in good taste, the nine horse. And at this point of the of the day I had not keyed in, uh, you know, being uh, in the outside post was probably not uh, where you wanted to be, at least uh, if you were going to, you know, stay out there. But so this nine horse in its um, last race on December 8th, um, you know, it goes from one turn to two turns and improves from a 65 to 79, um, you know, stalking a, a pretty slow pace. But the interesting part about that day on December 8th, if you're paying attention to buyer speed figures, the um, the numbers that day were under. Uh, I guess, in our opinion, the number was was low. We had bet a lot of horses coming out of this day, and these horses were really improving. And you know, our you know Marshall and I's estimation was that this you know was five to ten points slow on the buyer scale. So you know, I was wanting to take advantage that I thought that low number was low. And if, you know, if I thought that number was 85 to 80, uh, 89, you know, towered over this field, aperture out of the spring at last, you know, not the greatest pedigree, but, uh, you know, improved first time stretching out. I thought this horse um, was really going to improve uh, as, you know, as the distances got longer. Um the the other horse that I kind of liked was on the inside, the one horse, uh, you know, owned by Lewis Horton, Papit Janali. Uh, you know, these tapages get better with, uh, you know, as you get more distance. You know, 
this horse uh, had stretched out to two turns. Didn't run great in the stake, but I was wanting to give this horse another chance. The tappets, um, you know, improve uh, with distance, time, and even like the mud. So those were the two horses I keyed in on. The, the mistake I probably made on the nine a little bit was I didn't stick to, I thought this horse projected about five to one and opened up at seven, eight to one. And by, by post time had drifted down to three to one where most of that value had probably been squeezed out. So uh, I, I still bet it in hindsight, I probably should have just used in my uh, picks and gotten off on the wind bed when it got below my uh, projected value. For myself, we're going to go with Promise Me an Empire and Hush It Honey. For Clay, in good taste and a little bit of the inside horse tap at Chinale. Let's see what's done in the Martha Washington right now. Off some crowding at the break with Saratoga Secret got slammed between horses, drops to the back with Divine Gal. A good beginning for Tapid Chidali, who strides in front. Neon Beach, a neck behind second. Denim and Pearls placed in a good position by Florent Giroux. She's three deep. A joint third with Promise Me an Empire. Hush at Honey the Gray between horses. Eases off rivals' heels to run fifth. And she's three lengths off the pace in the early stages. Another length back to In Good Taste. She's with Saratoga Secret and Band of Gold. Divine Gal can see them all up the back stretch the field separated by eight lengths and tapage alley leads the way under christian torres tapage alley three quarters of a length ahead neon beach in the second spot in good pearls running in the third spot denim and pearls right there in that third position promise me an empire is down on the inside a joint third approaching the half mile pole hush it honey is next then saratoga secret band of gold there together in good taste shaken up a little bit in the second last position she's six lengths off the Pace and she's seven ahead of Divine Gal. Well behind as they round the far turn. Tap at Ginelli, three quarters of a length ahead. Neon Beach shown more rain to get after that leader. And Denim and Pearls makes it three across the track. Here comes Denim and Pearls to challenge Tap at Ginelli. Neon Beach sent hard between them. And those three are across the track, battling as they come off the turn. Band of Gold trying to get into it. She's fourth, four behind. Denim and Pearls asked for her best and kicks on to the lead. She Opens up a length and a half. And second tap at Janali. Neon Beach between them. Band of Gold continues to come charging. And here's Band of Gold for the upset. Band of Gold and Brian Hernandez Jr. to the lead. Soaring away to win the Martha Washington Stakes. And Band of Gold gets the job done. Big price, 24 to 1. 86 the winning buyer. Nice $50 win mutual. And I think when we look through this race and we, and we see exactly... What happened? I watched the trip and listen, the favorites three wide favorite to me had no excuse. I know you're saying to be on the being on the rail. Maybe now I think may have a small excuse, but the two nice, easy trip going down, had to pass obviously late. But I mean, when, when I look through this race again, you know, I see that win off the turf. That for me is always usually a negative thing because what's running in those type of races, but off the turf, you know, listen off the turf, even though it wasn't a sloppy track doesn't mean you know, when I see sloppy tracks like it was that day, I want to see sloppy Oakland races. There wasn't really much form of that to go on in this race. But obviously, Hush It Honey was not the right price. Ends up going off, coming off a dead last 21-1. Promise me an empire off the layoff. I thought ran perfectly fine. We'll see this one next time out. Obviously, maybe not in stakes company, and this one was taking a big jump up in class. When okay. I see uh, Denim and Pearls run, run second, I just wonder if this one has a little bit of problems finishing down the lane. This is another one where, you know, 
yes was in a battle. Uh, when you see those three, t- when they have those little three wide battles down the stretch, I always feel like the horses always go to the outside and people just forget there can always be a horse coming on the outside. And I feel like that happened again today. Not that Bandit Gold wasn't going to get the job done, but really nice ride. Obviously, big improvement. Was it the sloppy track? I would probably say that has more to do with it and maybe a little bit more with the pace scenario as well. But big buyer improvement. This one, I think I'm going to be a little bit skeptical of going forward. I wouldn't disagree to be a little skeptical. Um, I mean, what I probably missed on this horse had kind of a rough trip last time, but I didn't like that when it went one turn to two turns, didn't really improve much and, you know, was soundly beaten. But you got to be cognizant of these Kenny McPeak horses uh, in, in route race, especially in early in the spring. You know, they kind of disappear as the year goes on. But, you know, he's really with long shots at two turns. He's really sneaky. You know, this was a preservationist, you know, wouldn't, you know, bread, you know, anything that I, I thought, you know, could could have win a race like this. But, you know, this probably was a soft race. You know, getting back to Denver and Pearls, yeah, she ran fine. But, you know, she's a horse that's screaming for a cutback. This really is probably a really nice uh, stakes uh, winning type horse at one turn. And they're just going on with her because that's, A, where the money is. And she's talented enough to be competitive at two turns. But that's not really what she really wants to do. Do you kind of feel and like then my horse? Gone. No, go ahead. And then my nine just didn't really run. I don't know if it, it was almost too bad to believe. I don't know. Uh, and she was off the bias, you know, best part of the track. But, you know, I, I just think maybe she didn't like the mud um, or whatnot. I'll probably give her another shot next time, which she'll probably be in an easier spot in an N1X. But, you know, she, she was pretty bad. I, I feel like for your nine, too, it's always like the worst of both worlds. Like, obviously, you said the horse was, you know, eight to one loads in at three to one. So a, all the value is gone. Now you've got the win best plus the picks. Then the horse doesn't yeah. run a lick. So now it's like, okay, I've got a better back. Cause you know, as listen, handicappers, we can be egotistical and we don't think we're wrong. So then you better back again, Ho- hopefully in the easier spot. Like you said, if this one runs bad again, then it's like, where was I wrong from the get go that that key race all of a sudden, like she's the only one I had nine horses. Like how can I be so unlucky? And I've had that happen with me with plenty of runners. But then also with um with denim and pearls, do you notice that as horses that kind of fade down the stretch like that end up being better turn back horses, or you think that yes. just overall? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's enough talent to stay with the uh, you know a, you know a soft field going two turns, but she would beat this field by fifteen lengths if they were sprinting. Next race of the podcast, that being race number eleven, it was the Derby Prep of. This day, the Southwest, grade three, one and two miles on the dirt. What would we like in this one, Clay? Uh, I thought this was a difficult race, uh, you know, very well matched. You know, you have the, the big barns, Asmussen, um, Brad, uh, Brad Cox, and Baffert, maybe sending a B-teamer in. So I always, you know, like to go and evaluate the favorite, even though uh, Carbone uh, was the nine to two choice. That was the horse that I thought was going to go off favored. Let me check. Yeah, I went off at uh, a little less than two to one. Um, I thought this was very similar horse to uh, Denim and uh, Pearls uh, in the previous race. Uh, Matoli uh, is the sire on top. He was a sprinter. If you go watch this horse's uh, replays, he looks like a sprinter. And, you know, his last race, uh, you know, he was very impressive in that uh, first level allowance. But, in that race, uh, his other main speed, the rivals, there was a Brad Cox horse and a, a Kenny McPeak horse in there. Both missed the break. 
So this horse got loose and, you know, kind of dressed up that last race. So I was against Carbone, didn't want anything to do with that horse. I wasn't really keen on the Baffert horse that, um, you know, was the morning line favorite. Uh, that horse went off and, you know, had drifted higher at six and a half to one. So definitely the word wasn't out on that horse. Where I kind of settled in on was this uh, six-horse liberal arts. And, you know, we mentioned that the, the the track was pretty sloppy on Saturday. This horse had won a stake, a grade three uh, in Kentucky in the fall on a um, wet track. The Arrogate, uh, out of Arrogate, you know, projects to be a horse that could improve not only with time, but with distance. Um, low profile connections in Robert Medina. Uh, they, you know, draw the top jock on the backside at Oakland uh, Torres. And this horse, if you go back and look at the PPs, 46, 61, 73, 76, 83 buyers. It just improved with every start. And, you know, they've given this horse time since October. I just thought that this horse, you know, would improve. We're going to get a decent stocking trip. Um you know, was eight to one on the morning line. The, the other thing here I didn't like, you know, was bet had was opened up at like three to one, started to drift higher. Once it got to around five to one, I was a little more comfortable and uh, bet this horse. But uh, this was really the only horse in the race that I uh, liked a lot. It's always good when I have two, but you ended up liking one of mine, Liberal Arts. So I, I can also just real quick, everything that you said, you know, and the other thing with having Torres aboard. A lot of people always like to see the top jockey board. I always like to see jockeys like this with not just one start, maybe, but the last three times this horse has ran, Torres has been aboard. So just gets to learn the horse in and out. And like you had said, improving buyers all the way through off the layoff. Now, first time three-year-old Arrowgate. I mean, there's a lot of stuff here for the distance runners that just looks really good. I also thought an outside horse, just steal Vasquez aboard. Yes, D. Wayne Lucas, 5%. I'm not one who usually likes to bet these you know, trainers at sub 10%. But just the last three races, 73, 90, 83. And he also had the uh, route last time out at Oakland Park. I just wondered if this one can run anywhere near that 90 from that race two back. And you look at Carbone, who the only listen is one, two races back to back, has yet to go the distance and literally ran the same race twice. One being a slow paced race sprinting and then obviously improves one buyer figure. I just wondered in this race. Listen, I circle Winstock, the Bob Baffert, but for me, I'm usually anti-Bob anywhere because everyone just sees that name like Todd at Saratoga and just or Chad and just bets the horse no matter what. When this one goes the opposite way, thank thank you, Nomas. See you later. No worries. And then Maycox Bay on the inside was the other one. Had that 95. I just expect these types. If they beat me, they beat me. Usually these horses take a ton of money. And this one, you know, obviously did not uh didn't run. So I just wondered going then forward, you know, if this one next time out, maybe will be a bet back uh, for me, liberal arts, just steal. I'm trying to get rid of the two horses that I just thought showed zero value on the board for me, liberal arts and just steal for clay. We're going with liberal arts as well. Let's see if one of our two runners can get it done in the Southwest right now. Uh, 
Mystic Dan broke sharply today. So did Carbone and Otto the Conqueror, his stable bait, the two Aspis at entrance, one, two. Otto the Conqueror has the lead. Carbone second, Windstock running in the third position, placed in a good stocking position, but was aggressively ridden out of the gate. Wasn't quick enough to go with the front runner, Otto the Conqueror. Jess Steele, a bit keen here. Outside of Windstock, two lengths back to linebacker. Then comes Awesome Road. Mystic Dan was on the lead in his last couple of starts. Today, he's about six lengths behind at midfield field. He's racing with his stablemate Combat Defense. Liberal Arts is next. Charleston, the maiden, is second to last. And that leaves Magic Grant to trail the field with five furlongs to go. Otto the Conqueror paving the way here by a half length. Carbone applying the pressure to that stablemate with a half mile left to go. A length and a half to Jess Steele in third. Windstock in the fourth spot now sent along from that position. On the inside, Mystic Dan attempts to get closer. Slips inside of Windstock. Linebacker is next, trying to pass runners on the outside. He's four lengths behind, making a move as Windstock plummets back in the wrong direction. He's done. Liberal Arts trying to move forward inside of the weakening Windstock. He's about six lengths off the pace as the leaders start to line up. Coming back to the lead, Jess Steele making a big move after Carbone and Otto the Conqueror. Jess Steele storms to the front. Jess Steele and Ramon Vasquez have three sixteenths to go. Here comes Mystic Dan right up the rail, though, with a rail skimming ride by Brian Hernandez Jr. and Mystic Dan is turning it on in a huge effort for the Kenny McPeak Bard. Mystic Dan five, six ahead and he wins wrapped up a dominant win in the Southwest. And it's Mystic Dan getting the job done. 101, the winning buyer looking at a nice win mutual 2480. I feel like last year, and I remember this was Triple Crown, I said Man, it'd be really nice if a horse cracks 100 to win the Derby, and now we already have runners running 101. So this field this year seems to be much more equipped to run these faster times. And uh, I had looked at this runner for a little bit. The 96-3 back was really interesting. That was obviously on a slow-paced race, and then run 82 in the Smarty Jones. Just you can't bet them all, and I already had two longer-priced horses. So maybe this – I'm not, I'm not going to say this one gets into my picks, but – I mean, this one showed great value running the same kind of figures of the horses that I had already chosen as well. Yeah, I mean, he wasn't an impossible horse with that 96, uh, you know, in the in the back form. I really do believe this horse took advantage of a couple of things. He was on that, you know, golden rail. He may have also liked the flop. Um, he, the reason why I didn't like him, I thought he was more of a sprinter. Um you know, he had that 96 sprinting and then, you know, they stretched him out with Smarty Jones and, you know, you know, he backed up, I guess, you know, running fifth and ran an 82 buyer. Um, I, I honestly would short this horse going forward. I really think he will be better on, on the cutback. I think he's talented. Uh, I think he took advantage of the track and maybe some of the others didn't, but we'll see going forward, but uh, I'll be, uh, I'll be against him. It'll, and it's always nice to know because I'll, I'll, hopefully this one will be running the next stake race for the Triple Crown Trail, and then it's really easy. If it's not sloppy and this one stays off what, what we say is a golden rail if it's raining, now we can kind of get a full figure on this one. Right now it's kind of you can't add much to the profile if you're using formula or anything except for slop, question mark, golden rail, and then yeah. see what comes off of this. Uh, this race kind of sucked for me because usually when you have runaway winners like this, and then you run second and third, you're kind of like, well, if the winner's not involved, I have the exact and I have the better price on top. So, I mean, yeah. for, for for me in this race, listen, like you had said, this one freaked out, freaked out ran a 101. May, I would expect this one 
in general to probably bounce back a little bit because obviously we're not seeing figures um, like 101 just yet. But just steel liberal arts. Listen, I, I ran second and third. I got beat. Good handicapping, yes. Missed out on the winner. But more questions and answers, I think, coming out of this race for the winner. And then we kind of get to judge the others as they go forward. Let's jump into the last race of this podcast. That being race number 12. It is an N1X allowance, 101.16 miles on the dirt. And for me in this race, I just looked at a couple. Obviously, Cosmo, Alexander Helios, these favorite type horses. I ended up on Pledge of Allegiance for with uh, Banjo and Raul Moquette. I just thought this one, second off a layoff, that first race, just missed at a big price, 25 to 1. Now we kind of have going forward into the second race, I, I just wanted a different different one than the, than the favorites in this one. That's what I ended up with. Well, I, I like Pledge of Allegiance. He's a horse that we used to own, was claimed from us uh, three races back. So I always have a soft spot for that horse. I didn't necessarily like him uh, in this race because I was worried at this point. I was really clued in after that freak performance and how good the rail was. And I was worried about how this horse would run. We also had uh, Elusive Target, the six was a 10 strike horse. Uh, had you know run well pretty well the last two races but would still need to step up to win at this uh, a other than level but still was you know in the six hole and you know a horse without a lot of speed i was worried about how this horse was going to trip out the the way this race was written can you know teach you quite a few things this is um it's an a other than n1x but the way it was written um, it's for horses that never won 24,000 other than maiden claim or starter or state bred. So what way that condition is written, it allows horses that have won their N1X but below $24,000 purse. And that's where, uh, you know, you mentioned Alexander Helios for Sophie, uh, for Safi Joseph. That horse had won and say other than at Tampa, which is right under the limit to be in this race. So I really keyed in, you know, I love these horses that have had an extra win, had already won at the level. The, the problem I had with this horse was I didn't know what the value was going to be and how this horse was going to trip out. But I think on a dry, fair track, this horse anywhere near that three to one morning line would have been valued. Where I, where I keyed in was, um, was before, uh, if you go back and look at this uh, machine gun, man, go back and look at this horse's PTs. This horse projected to be on the lead. Um, he had shown the talent to be three and a half to one in the Super Derby back uh, in September and then uh, ran in a sprint at the fairgrounds last time out. Uh, this, this horse is a, a route horse, was in the wrong spot, um, projected uh, to be on the lead. And if you go back and look at the, uh, you know, coming off the layoff, this horse had really two nice works at the fairgrounds. Uh, a bullet uh, January 11th and uh, three out of 139 on January 20th. And another thing that's interesting that a lot of the players probably don't understand is a lot of these horses that are based in Oakland had missed training for two weeks during an ice storm. So horses that were not based locally had a huge fitness edge. And another reason uh, why I liked the uh, um, Safi's horse, uh, Alexander Helios, is this horse is fit. I'd run January 5th and been training down in Palmetto, so missed no, missed no time. Whereas these horses in Oakland, they had been in their stall for two weeks without getting to the track. Huge advantage for uh, the out-of-town strippers. Machine Gun Man for Clay, for, and a little bit 
of Alexander Helio said that what he says is a decent price. Pledge of allegiance for myself. Hoping Banjo can uh, get me a winner here in the nightcap at Oaklawn right now. They're off in the nightcap. Cat Daddy was off slowly. Good start from Machine Gun Man, who fires to the front. Alexander Helios takes second. Poulter down on the inside. Then comes Woodcock Flight, caught deep. The European shipper into the clubhouse turn. Next, Revolt, usually towards the front of the field. Today, he's stalking the pace three lengths behind with elusive target. And Tarico, who's three deep. A length and a half to Pledge of Allegiance, well off the rail today. Ten days later, alongside of him, the slow-starting Cat Daddy has one runner beat. He's alongside Chrome Baby, who's the trailer. Eight lengths from first to 11th as they swing up the backstretch. Machine Gun Man slows the tempo down here on the front end. Leads three quarters of a length. Alexander Helios running in the second. Woodcock Flight third to the outside. Poulterer is next. A gap of two lengths to Tarico. He's in about the five path down the backside. He's running five lengths behind. He's racing alongside of Pledge of Allegiance. Next Revolt is next. Elusive Target losing a few spots approaching the turn. Ten days later. He's next, third last. There's plenty of ground to make up. Chrome Baby's second to last as Cat Daddy is completely dropped out of it. Around the far turn, Machine Gun Man a neck in front. Alexander Heary Leos right there. Woodcock Flight sent along three wide, losing contact with the top pair. Poulter's in with a shot. He's searching for racing room. He's got run as they come off the turn. Alexander Helios, Machine Gun Man right together. Machine Gun Man on the inside digs in. Alexander Helios Poulter trying to split that pair up into second. Alexander Helios beaten in third. There's a 16th to go. Machine Gun Man still going strong. And Machine Gun Man and Manny Escavel win the nightcap gate to wire. And is Machine Gun Man getting the job done? 88, the winning buyer. Looking at a nice win mutual of 26-20. And, and listen, uh, for people who didn't know about the ice storm, I, I did not know, but it's it feels good when you kind of have that, you know, hypothesis conclusion. Okay, they're going to be fitter coming in today, and then you find a nice little winner in the nightcap at twenty six twenty. When I when I looked back through this race before our pod tried to figure it out, had the nice win at Evangel and Downs, but I liked your your prognosis too. Of you know, this horse was you know seven to two in the Super Derby, and then if you bring along that you think he's a router and he shouldn't be sprinting, okay, he crossed that race out. The form does not equal a twenty six twenty winner. So I mean, nice value there, Clay. Yeah, I mean, look, right, even before the Super Derby, we ran a 92 buyer going uh, two turns at Evangeline Downs on the lead. So we knew he had route speed. And, you know, it was kind of a leap of faith, but, you know, I didn't like a lot of these other horses. And, and you mentioned the ice. Uh, the, I forgot to mention that when we were discussing some of those earlier races. And those horses, even with trainers that are based at Oakland and Brad Cox and Kenny McPeak, they had shipped, uh, you know, Kenny had shipped those horses back to the fairgrounds so they uh, didn't miss training. So uh, a lot of people, you know, weren't going to pick up on that. But that is a major advantage to horses um, in the last two weekends, especially the weekend before. But uh, even this weekend, you have horses that weren't totally fit. Now, by by this coming weekend, those horses have been back training for their mm-hmm. be the third week. They should be back and wouldn't be an advantage for shippers. But, you know, the past two weekends, that was, a, you know, huge advantage. And I, th- I think today, you know, obviously our Today being that that race day, you have a golden rail, you have a sloppy racetrack, plus you have the shippers coming in. There's a lot of different notes that you can take out of this out of this podcast and just that day. And you know, I think four months from now, 
you know, if you see a horse that starts to look like the numbers are climbing back into what they were before, maybe that one bad race due to not being in training at Oaklawn, and then all of a sudden you can catch these horses at, you know, seven, eight, nine to one. Maybe their form isn't dirty because they're still hitting, running in the money, but you can tell that that next breakthrough performance is coming out and ready to go. Absolutely. No, there'll be a lot of horses coming out these weekends that I'm going to have notes on. And, you know, especially if you're a horse that's three wide and didn't run as well and you backed up your buyer and results of that race, they're going to be horses you want to bet back out of that. Off that bias, and you know, horses that you know that ran well that you know probably you know benefited, and you don't want to bet. And I, I will say this, and, and thank you for clarifying because when I when I handicapped this race originally, I saw the 24,000 tag and I said, I understand that that racing has to write a million different conditions, but by <clears throat> god, can we just make it easier on the beginning player? And listen, if you're on your second or third day at the racetrack, I'm not expecting you to know the class hierarchy, and you know, except for the basic, you know, maiden claiming allowance and stake but i i feel like when i look through condition books even when i'm trying to you know make buyer pars etc stuff like that like there's sometimes six seven conditions for one race and i'm just like they might as well let some horses in there 15 years old because apparently they can run in this race too yeah i mean you're, you're certainly right and that's where savvy trainers can really add value versus ones that aren't as astute at the uh, condition book you know, Safi was down there. I he rarely shits up to Oakland, but I think somehow he picked up on that if he was tipped off by a by a jock agent or whatnot. But I agree with you. But you know, simplifying the conditions. But you know, betters also complain when fields are short. And the reason why these racing secretaries are doing this <laughs> yeah. is they uh, can get more entry, get more horses into the race. So it's kind of the yin and the yang. You know, cleaner condition book might have four horses or a race that doesn't go. And they smash a couple uh, conditions together and get it to go. So I, I'm with you. It, it's confusing. Uh, I get frustrated as an owner, but I mean, you know, people hate betting small fields too. So yeah, I, I mean, you got to be careful what you wish. I, I listen. I agree with you there. I, obviously, I'm for more fields, and I think that's why Poly Track and you know the turf racing has become so much bigger here because we're only getting these five and six horse stake fields. But even in the program yeah. for that day, there's got to be a way that you can just kind of put the class hierarchy on a sheet like you do in the condition book for the index, put it in order yeah. and just the, here's the races for today. This is where they are race two and three are split out of a maiden special weight. And I think that would just be a good teaching tool as well. And then listen, if you're someone who goes to Saratoga, you can then start to make your own kind of database. Cause you have all the programs there and you can kind of figure it out that way. There's just, it's listen, is it more work? Yes. But I think that's work that can take 15, 20 minutes on a printer and in Microsoft word that doesn't, you know, destroy someone's life for a day. No, I agree. I agree. We need to make things simpler for betters and especially newcomers, uh, you know, make people enjoy the sport and uh, become more uh, proficient at it. With that, I do want to thank my special guest, Clay Sanders, for coming on and talking all things <clears throat> Oklahoma Park with me. Clay, tell me what's going on with 10 Strike and what else you got going down in the pipeline. You know, we, uh, we've had a slow start for our uh, three-year-olds. Uh, we've uh, only had two starters at Oakland, but we've had some, a couple of injuries, et cetera. So we're really excited to get, uh, you know, we've got six horses now, uh, full training in Oakland. So we should have some uh, nice, fun horses coming out there. Some of our nicer stakes horses and Iron Clover, Yesternight, Exponential Star, uh, we gave them some time. So they will be coming back uh, later in the meet in Oakland you know, hopefully in some stakes races. And then in New York, we have Whittington Park, who uh, just won an N open N1X 
and he'll be going in the Haynes field uh, later in the month, uh, New York bred steak. And we have Looms Boldly, who's a New York bred uh, steak horse that we gave him some time off as he uh, has gone from three to four. And he got back to uh, Brad's uh, string up in New York, uh, I think last week. So, you know, maybe later in the spring, we'll see him back in some uh, New York sprint steaks. So a lot of, a lot to look forward to. Sounds like it. Like I said, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. All right. Thanks, Spencer. Good luck, everyone. I want to thank everyone who listens to this podcast and the rest of the podcast on the, in the Money Media Network. Also, want to thank my special guest Clay Sanders for coming on, talking all things Oaklawn Park with myself. This show is been a production of In the Money Media. In the Money Media's president is Peter Thomas Fornell. Our chief creative officer is Jonathan Kinchin, and our In the Money Media business manager is Drew Coatney. I'm Spencer Luganbuehl. We will see you next time.